Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. We're now in our 49th episode of 2021. Um, last week, Jessica Rosenworcel made history by being confirmed by the Senate as the first permanent chairwoman of the FCC. So congratulations, Jessica. So now we have four FCC commissioners in place, two Democrats and two Republicans. The confirmation proceeding for Gigi Soam for the fifth seat at the FCC will likely play out early in 2022. Today, though, we expect Alan Davidson's nomination to head NTI to come out of committee, and we expect that his confirmation will go to the floor before the end of the year. So we should have our leadership in place in NTI, which will be great. Speaking of NTI, uh, Doug Kinkoff, who's heading up this $46 billion of broadband infrastructure funding that NTI will be administrating, he joined us, the Fiber Broadband Association, last week in D.C. And Doug provided our members with extensive Q&A session on the upcoming BEADS program, which was extremely informative and very timely. We expect NTIA to issue a request for comments on BEAD implementation process before Christmas or shortly thereafterwards. Yesterday, the FCC also authorized the long-form applications for 2008 RDOF winning bids, which are largely rural electric co-ops and telcos. As anticipated, you know, the FCC is carefully scrutinizing the winners of last year's RDOF auction and approving fiber projects from qualified providers first. So speaking of our nation's investment in broadband, this morning, our fiber broadband, or excuse me, fiber for breakfast session is time is now bridging the urban-rural-digital divide. Last week, we met with Alex Hargoff of the Permitting Institute, discussed the complexity of the permitting process and how to remove barriers to accelerate broadband deployment. Today, our guest is Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee from the Brookings, the Brookings Institute. And our topic today is Time is Now, Bridging the Urban-Rural-Digital Divide. Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee is a senior fellow from Government Studies uh, in government studies, the director of the Center for Technology Innovation and serves as the co-editor-in-chief of Tech Tank. Dr. Turner Lee researches public policy designed to enable equitable access to technology across the U.S. and to harness its power to create change in communities across the world. Her work also explores global and domestic broadband deployment and internet governance issues. She's an expert on the intersection of race, wealth, and technology within the context of civil engagement, criminal justice, and economic development. Dr. Turner Lee has a PhD and MA from Northwestern University and graduated from Colgate University. Welcome, Dr. Lee. And for our audience, please type your questions as we go for our Q&A at the conclusion of Dr. Lee's remarks. So with that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Lee. Well, thank you so much, Gary, and thank you to the association for having me. Sounds like you've been busy, just like us in Washington, D.C., trying to figure out all of the details as the president's infrastructure proposal has passed. 
But what does that mean for urban and rural broadband? And let me caveat my talk with a shameless plug. Yeah, I've got a book coming out. Hopefully you'll have me back next year. It's on the U.S. digital divide. It's entitled Digitally Invincible, How the Internet is Creating the New Underclass. The argument that I'm really making there is that a technology that was designed to essentially solve social problems and exercise resiliency, particularly as we've seen with the pandemic, has the potential for shortcomings. Most importantly, has the potential to widen what was already an existing digital divide before the pandemic in ways that we've never seen it before. And more importantly, what I try to say in the book is that being disconnected from the internet is a symptom of poverty. It's a poverty that comes in income inequality, but it's a poverty that comes to local farmers that I interviewed that are unable to get online in rural communities to actually advance their businesses to the next stage. So with that being the case, we've got this opportunity, my friends. We've got this huge down payment on broadband. It's already been uh, mentioned that the NTIA will have a huge responsibility of spending most of that money. And we've got these two quagmires, these tail of potentially two cities. One is urban and one is rural. And they have particular topographical challenges uh, in and of itself. They've got challenges around cost investments, and then there are people challenges. And I'd like to sort of narrow my remarks around those areas in hopes that we'll get more questions. I actually like to pose it, the fact that we don't have an urban divide and a rural divide. We really have urban solutions and rural solutions. And what do I mean by that? In urban areas, we know that we have a lot more pass-through when it comes to the various types of technologies that serve urban residents, whether that's wired, it's wireless, Wi-Fi, fiber, you name it. There are a ton of solutions that actually exist in urban communities. But the challenge that we have in urban is that some of these solutions don't necessarily get to the people that we want to be served. You think about the pandemic and the fact that we sent 50 million school-aged children home, about 15 to 16 million of them were kids that lived in without home broadband service or device or lived about 35% of them in poverty. We did not actually bring broadband access or open Wi-Fi access to affordable housing in urban areas. We had a lot of students that lived in rent-controlled or subsidized housing that could not go outside of their door to actually tap into a Wi-Fi hotspot to do their homework. And now, as many of you know, we're actually facing the consequences of learning losses across the country for kids who were not necessarily connected in the way that we thought that they were. So having access in urban communities, essentially for me, is making sure we get into the people and the form in which they live. And to me, that means transforming some of these digital parking lots that were concrete stoops that sat at fast food restaurants into open Wi-Fi hotspots. I call them uh, Gary, digital parking lots into digital parks and revitalizing the way that we actually price broadband services since we've got more options for urban residents. I haven't thought a lot about that. It's something that I'm actually writing about in my book. But we really need to think about urban solutions in a way that we haven't thought about it before. Not just about cost, but about the type of technologies that we can actually advance in urban communities that allow for this uh, portfolio of, of pricing that let people get on in the way they need to actually use the service. When we think about rural, it becomes more complicated. In my book, I actually travel to rural communities across the country. I met cattle farmers out of Nebraska. I talked to people who are small farmers in Garrett County, Maryland. Met a lot of Main Street professionals that sat in Santa, Virginia. And one thing was for sure, without broadband access, as one mechanic said in my uh, book, you can read about it and I'll share it on this story, 
that it's like the ice cream truck coming to your neighborhood. It's only got vanilla and chocolate in a rural community and it might have strawberry, but that's about it. In rural communities, the challenge is always topography. In Garrett County, where there's more cows and people, many of you on this call know the challenges of actually bringing fiber to those large scale lands. I had the opportunity of meeting my friend out there in Kentucky who had a mule as he was building a $50 million fiber ring that he had to actually have this mule take the fiber to the top of the mountain. It's a true story. <laughs> I have actually shared many stories about this kid. With that being the case, we know that there are cost implications of actually you know, building the network via fiber, but there's also cost implications in having the type of revenue coming from customers and subscribers. But one thing I will say about rural that I hope we do not see in this iteration of the Biden plan is that we use the excuse of return on investment as a way to not develop the right rural solutions. And I'd like to put out there, since you're the Five Broadband Association, that we think carefully about going wholesale, wholesale in terms of our technology and in terms of our investments in rural communities. I may not be the most liked person right now on this call, but I have to say this. We spent all of our money in fiber investments in rural. We might not have any money to do anything else with the money that Biden has actually allocated. Building broadband is expensive. It's going to require a mix of private equity, private sector partnerships, government support, as well as nonprofits as, and some cooperatives to come to the game table together to figure out what solution works best for the communities that they serve. Let me tell you what I mean by that. And again, this is in my book, but I'll share it. I met a young man who actually built a Wi-Fi network in a town of 500 people in Nebraska. He basically told me that he leased everything, his house, his car, released his house, released his car, he leased everything except his wife to provide 500 people in his town a Wi-Fi signal. That's not unusual that we actually see a lot of small professionals, small broadband companies, mid-side broadband companies, not necessarily leveraging government investment to build their networks. We see that across the country in ways that I think has not been accounted for in some of the discussions that we're having right now. Now, the extent to which we want to say, well, here's all this government money and you've got to meet these goals, we've got to think about that. Because what I actually think in my 20 plus experience doing this stuff is that we need to think about how we break some of these wholesale solutions into more modular, customized solutions so that people get what they need to build out that last mile and middle mile. We have to, and I'll sort of wrap up here, be real cognizant, and I'll leave you with three points. One, that we approach urban and rural broadband as solutions in and of itself, and we don't pit them against each other when we wind up with the same types of outputs that we have had dating back to the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, where we invest in projects that are one-time, non-sustainable, non-replicable, and we wait for another government rush of money to allow us to build out broadband. My friends, the time is now. Everybody now sees that the digital divide is no joke. I tell people in my professional life, I was like the girl at the prom when nobody wanted to dance with. Now everybody wants to talk to me because I've been studying digital divide for over 30 years when our friend Larry Irving actually came up with the term. Two, we have to be sensitive that we're not going in these one-size-fits-all solutions when it comes to rural America or urban America. It's really important. When I talk to that farmer in Geary County, one of the things he said to me is like, I don't need broadband to go into precision agriculture just yet. I need broadband to order supplies. I need broadband to make sure that I can maybe use some of these apps that tell me when it's time to water my crops or not. Even building, and in that case in Garrett County, they actually had what was called television white space, which is a point-to-point -point mesh network that allowed that farmer to exist. 
tapping into the fiber that was available, we can actually build upon that with multiple models of internet infrastructure that allow us to have some assets that meet the needs of those communities, particularly when we have large land scale challenges. We have challenges when it comes to return on investment. And third, I would say, we need to take the question of affordability and use and make that a universal problem across urban and rural neighborhoods. We tend to think urban is about pricing. We tend to think rural is about uh, space and capacity. My friends, it's both. People in rural and urban America right now are hurting. They're hurting before the pandemic and they're definitely hurting after the pandemic when it comes to schooling, when it comes to employment, when it comes to innovation and entrepreneurship, when it comes to the ability to be part of a world. That's why I call my book Digitally Invisible. These are folks that have been invisible for a very long time. They've suffered as small farmers, the uh, decrease in funding for farming in general, and they cannot compete with large farm holders. They struggle when it comes to educating their children in rural and urban America, particularly when schools shut down, and they now struggle for economic resiliency. Friends, broadband alone will not solve that. We need to seriously think about how do we come up with the technical cadence, the talent and asset mapping, along with the type of expenditures and investments that we need across the board from private equity all the way to government spending to make this work. We may not in this down payment actually reach all of America, but we bet sure darn try because we have now moved from an analog society of being in line and in person to one where being online matters. And so Gary, I'm gonna stop there because I wanna give enough time for your questions and the questions of our audience. But as you can see, I'm like a Baptist preacher. You get me started, I'm not gonna stop <laughs> until we have the conviction to ensure that we're coming into the communities with the right technical solutions, the right balance of funding for the people that are part of your association as well as others, and the right attention to the people that are going to be impacted by this continuing legacy of being left offline. The digital divide did not start before the pandemic, my friends. It started way before then, when I was out in the field talking to these folks two weeks prior to when this pandemic hit was my last site visit. It's just gotten worse because the resiliency that we want in this country actually believes that most people are connected. So I'll stop there. <laughs> Hopefully we can actually have some more conversation on this. Thank well, great. you. Great, hey, thanks. Thanks, Nicole. Um, I don't know if you happen to have a headset handy, but um, your your broadband connection is not too good, or your mic connection. So um, I know people are struggling to hear you. But um, anyway, while you, you happen to have one there, um, I wanted to kind of hit on something that um, you said that felt a little bit to me like fingernails on a chalkboard. Um, so you were saying that we only have so much money, and I think I heard you say that um, you know we. We should be careful of the money and not use fiber to connect every rural and urban person. So I was saying that um, your one comment was felt a little bit like fingernails on a chalkboard to me, where I think you were saying that we should try to, you know, kind of I, the old argument that we should um, spread our funding like peanut butter and make sure that everybody has some kind of solution. When we right now we have, we'll never have this opportunity for investment that we have right in front of us to be able to make sure that you know urban areas or rural areas don't get a second right rate solution you know when we look at you know for example 85 years ago being able to pull power to every you know person across the country if you have power you should be able to have fiber there's no reason that you can't be able to pull fiber to that and it'd be to me the same as saying well 
you're hard to reach, you know, the high cost area. So we'll um, send you over a generator or give you, um, you know, a solar panel that you can put up or something like that versus being able to have the proper, um, you know, power delivered to your home. And so what we are saying is, you know, I just got off before this call, I was on with the Eastern shore of Virginia. And, you know, that's a very isolated place. And what their challenge is, is that people have to either commute into um, Hampton, uh, you know, to the Virginia Beach area or um, the Hampton Roads area, or they, they have to move. And by being able to have fiber optics to the Eastern shore will allow them to, you know, people to live where they want to live, be able to get the education they need, the health care they need, and be able to work remotely from anywhere in the world. Um, you know, so those are the kind of things that are going to be life changing to that community. Did I misunderstand you? Or I mean, I would no, think no, that you'd you be didn't, advocating. You, you didn't misunderstand me. I think that fiber is one solution along with very uh, other solutions. I think that we have the capacity in some rural areas to do deep spread and depth of 5G wireless or any type of um, fixed wireless solution. I think that we have the opportunity in urban areas to rely upon cable. My concern is that this is not or should not be only a supply side equation, because if we put everything in the building and they will come, we're not gonna serve the least of the people that are in the communities. Yes, I know if I live in Eastern Shore and I commute to DC, I'm gonna have a hard time getting broadband, but I'm not, I don't really care about those people here. Let me just be real clear. I care about those kids that didn't get a chance to get online for school because they had no solution. Uh, whatsoever. And I think the marketplace is out demonstrating that, yes, we need fiber to sort of propagate any of the signals that you're talking about and I'm talking about, but we also need to make sure that we're serving the least first. For me, if we go about serving the those that have access or have the ability to have access so that they can do more, then we're not solving the digital divide. All we're doing is solving the supply side of the equation. We need to really balance supply and demand as we go forward. I, I live through as a person who started community tech centers across the United States early in my career, worked for a, company, a group called What Economy, we have been battling this issue for 30 years because we keep putting more money in supply and not enough money in demand. And if you look at the spread of the funding for the Infrastructure Investment Act, we actually see less money in digital equity, which means we'll have more networks where people actually are not trained to actually use those networks, in addition to people not being trained to work those networks or support those networks, as many of your members will be looking for a workforce that is trained to help them expand their customer service, their cloud-based services, et cetera. So I think it just has to be a balance. I think that the, the rush to get broadband, particularly in the absence of maps, uh, as well as the absence of the type of rich data that we need to make sure we make sense about our investments are gonna matter this time around. Yeah, so just, um, just to provide some clarification, um, when you say things like 5G, 5G requires fiber. So oh, yeah. 5G is a very 500 meters, right? So you are having to get fiber. Um, and when you say fixed wireless, fixed wireless requires fiber all the way to the line all of sight. Yep. So, so all those things require robust fiber. So if you're pulling fiber, there should be no circumstance where we don't pull fiber to every American. Right. We well, to do that. And do, then just kind do. of to, to back up a little bit, you you also addressed um, you know the digital equity part. You know, I look at it as in three things, right? There's the three A's, I'll call them access, affordability, and adoption. If you don't do those in the right order, so if you don't have the infrastructure out the access, then you know, right now when they put money out for like the um 
emergency broadband benefit and you you offer $50 subsidy, but you're paying a $500 satellite or wireless bill, that really doesn't do anything for you. So if you can be able to get gigabit service for $50 or $70 and use a $50 subsidy on a $70 service and get gigabit, then it becomes something that's affordable. Um, so I, I really think it's important that you have to get the infrastructure out. Let me jump to some. Um, oh, no, Gary, let, me just, let me just push back on that, because that's something that I think has been part of the traditional defining of the digital divide that I think we get wrong. I've been doing this for like 30 years where we looked at affordability, availability, affordability, accessibility as, as a person who was in the community technology center movement 30 years ago, and as somebody who worked for one economy corporation. Part of the problem with actually just sticking with those three A's is that we stay within a binary construct of the digital divide. We have to address the fact that we need people connected in this society right now because they have to access telehealth services and they have to access remote services to be able to work. You also cannot survive in these networks, and you know this like I do, without the data capacity that will allow you to actually maintain first-class digital citizenship in this new economy. So I, I would suggest, particularly as an association, is thinking about closing the divide. Yes, infrastructure matters, that's what you all do, but you have to think about going back maybe 15, 20 years ago when we thought that infrastructure was the key and we have places where we're not able to solve the affordability problem, but more so with the advent of ride-sharing services and other applications, we're not going to be able to keep up with the collateral that people need. That's why in this bill are devices that people need to actually sign on to these networks, like having highways without cars. So I think it's a little bit more um, deepened than we've actually seen in the last 25 years, which concerns me as somebody who has been like talking to people every day of the single two years on how we solve this in a way that centers people and community first, but also lets folks that are working on these spaces who have been working on these spaces and bringing fiber to communities understand that we might need to go in a non-wholesale direction to ensure that we get to the last edges of the middle and last miles of our communities, particularly serving the least first so that we can at least complete the roadmap for broadband access. So one of our... Uh... Audience members had said, um, you know, you make some great points, and that uh, they grew up on a farm 15 miles from town, and the local carrier built fiber to their parents' house last year using government funds to pay the bill. However, the pr provider priced their product so high to match the local wireless pricing, and so it really didn't provide any value. Are you seeing something like that in those Oh, definitely. That's what we're seeing across this country, man. I mean, part of the reason why I wanted to do the book on the digital divide, and I went out before the pandemic and actually talked to people, is for these very reasons. We've been sort of stuck on the last and middle mile conversations, but we haven't talked to Yoda Farm in Garrett County, Maryland. John Yoder, who owns that farm, was saying, listen, I can still see, you know, the build out less than a mile from where my farm is, and I still got to drive into town to do all of my business work. That's not acceptable because he has a family that he wants to also make sure they engage with technology. The thing that I love about this uh, infrastructure investment bill is that it should have some flexibility, particularly for states, to really dig deeper into what's going on in their landscape. Uh, compared to what we've had these types of monies before, where the federal government has been sort of the agency over how these funds are used, I think we're seeing a flip-flop where states are actually going to have much more of a localized presence to determine not only where we're building it, but what supports are needed for affordability and pricing. I think that's in that bill as well. But one of the things I would urge everybody who is on this call with your state, you make sure that there are enough seats at that table because states alone cannot just do it with the private sector. 
We need these superintendents of schools to be sitting at the tables. We need these hospital clinics to be sitting at the tables. We need to actually develop what I call an ecosystem of digital infrastructure that allows the companies that are representing fiber uh, companies on this association, along with the entities that are representing the people that live in your communities to come together so you can drive the demand. So I just wanted to put, I love that question because I saw it throughout, like we've doing the best that we can, Nicole. I actually met a, a guy who was actually building on cattle, cattle farms in Nebraska, his own networks using fiber, just so that they can have improved quality of life. Well, now we have this opportunity, I think, to flip the switch and to allow for more voices to be included in the mitigation and the identification of where these resources should go. So Nicole, um... You know, one of the things that um, has me very concerned is like when I talk to Northwest Louisiana, there's entire parishes that don't participate in internet at all. You know, how are we gonna get those communities to, you know, so we can pull our fiber to those communities, but how do we get them to adopt? Well, it's so interesting. I'm doing a project now um, in some of those parishes in Louisiana where I'm just sort of watching their digital use. Again, the people who are actually turning out to be the interesting actors in this equation are the local community-based organizations that are trying to advance some of the same social goals, but in the social service realm, connecting people to opportunities for employment, education, training. I think, and this is something I'm going to put out there boldly. Again, I was an American recovery uh, person in terms of being a CTC at the time. We have to clean these supply and demand issues. The more that companies can actually bring the right stakeholders to the table that represent the lived experiences of their communities, as well as the interests, what are you trying to solve? Is really what states should be saying when it comes to the use of technology. I think, Gary, to your point, we'll then be able to do the right maps of fiber, what the states may be holding on to and municipalities may be hoarding, and we may be able to come out with what I call not digital inclusion plans, my friends, but digital equity plans that allow for economic development, educational livelihood, and the type of innovation and entrepreneurship that we all know we need after this pandemic. So, you know, um, this week um, we saw um, Congressman Latta and Senator Wicker and a number of others send a bill to the FCC, or bill, a letter to the FCC um, uh, saying there was fraud with uh, the EBB. Um, are you familiar with that letter and are you seeing anything? Is that going to, um, what kind of impact is, um, you know, Congress's, uh, you know, citing that um, our, these efforts to have emergency broadband benefit are, are ending on fraud? Well, you know, it's funny. I have to tell you, I've been in this debate so long, Carrie, that when I heard the word fraud, I heard about the fraud that they talked about the Lifeline program, which is something that was always very partisan. I think we have to like sit back and say throughout the government there's going to be fraud that actually exists because we had to accelerate all stops to be able to have a good pandemic response. What I think the letter should be to the FCC now that they have what you said, the leadership in place to actually get the job done, is we should be thinking about what universal service looks like in this country anyway. Is the emergency broadband benefit of the affordability mechanism and the infrastructure bill going to be the right way? Should it replace the lifeline program? Um, to me, that suggests that we have some work to do to not necessarily raise the flag when we think that there's some uh, waste, fraud, and abuse, but we need to raise the flag on some additional research and evidence to show the success and effectiveness of that program. Well, Dr. Lee, unfortunately, we're out of time, but I really appreciate you um, taking the time to get with us, and we really appreciate uh, your experience and expertise. 
I don't know if I lost her. But um, next week, uh, our topic is who's pulling your supply chain with Finley's engineering vice president, Dean Amichke. He's going to discuss the underlying factors impacting our supply chain and provide some insights as to why this supply chain issue may not follow the trends of previous shortages. I'm here. You're not going to want to miss that. So thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you guys again next Wednesday.